This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, NASA launches a spacecraft to redirect a harmless near-Earth asteroid. Ten months from now, we'll find out if the golf cart-sized spacecraft knocked away the asteroid. We speak with the agency's planetary defense officer to see how the DART team will measure success and use the new technology for future operations. And the Space Development Agency is DOD's way to develop space-based capabilities and deliver them to the warfighter quickly. We talked to the SDA director about how the agency is working to deliver results. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. On November 24th, NASA launched a spacecraft into space, the first spacecraft sent to hit and redirect a harmless near-Earth asteroid. It's called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART. The trip takes 10 months, but if it's successful, NASA will be able to deflect dangerous asteroids plummeting towards Earth years in advance. Lindley Johnson is the Planetary Defense Officer and Program Executive for the Planetary Defense Coordination Office at NASA. Lindley, welcome to the program. Yes, I am, Mimi. Glad to be here. So what are the odds that, uh, you know, an asteroid will plummet to the Earth and take out entire cities? Well, that is an extremely rare event, thankfully. Uh, but it is something that, uh, that could happen. And uh, there are literally tens of thousands of asteroids in near-Earth space uh, that uh, we're trying to find them all now. But until we do and know where they are and where they're going, uh, that possibility uh, exists that uh, we could be faced with such a uh, natural disaster. So the possibility exists, but what about the probability? Uh, well, uh, it's all uh, kind of a random uh, thing. Uh, the Earth gets hit with uh, a sizable asteroid of ten, uh, tens of meters in size uh, uh, every uh, few decades uh, to a century. Uh, maybe uh, on average once in a thousand years we we'll get hit with something of significant size that it could do uh, regional damage, just uh, devastate a statewide area. So the DART mission is kind of unusual for NASA since it's a civilian organization and the mission has always been about exploration, not about protecting the planet. Well, uh, planetary defense, I like to refer to planetary defense as applied planetary science. Uh, what we've learned through our planetary uh, science exploration uh, tells us, first of all, that those uh, asteroids are uh, out there in, in near-Earth space. And then it takes the techniques and technology of uh, planetary missions uh, to be able to uh, deflect one uh, should we ever need to. So what have been the challenges that you faced with launching um, this mission into space? How did you manage all those moving parts? Uh, well, uh, it is quite a uh, complex uh, thing uh, to undertake an interplanetary uh, flight mission, uh, but it's uh, it's teamwork. It's the uh, knowledge and skills of uh, uh, both uh, our, our NASA uh, workforce and our, our partners, uh, in this case with the DART mission, uh, the Applied Physics Lab in, in uh, Laurel, Maryland, and their experience in both uh, it's been NASA missions, planetary missions, and 
uh, their work with the Department of Defense. So as the spacecraft uh, starts to approach the asteroid and hopefully makes contact, what will you all be looking for on the ground? Well, uh, the whole point of this test is to uh, change the velocity of the moonlit uh, uh, dimorphous around the primary asteroid uh, Didymos. And uh, so we are going to run this spacecraft uh, into uh, dimorphous at a high velocity uh, to uh, change its velocity and that changes its orbit uh, around uh, Didymos. So uh, we will be looking, uh, first of all, uh, we've known about this asteroid for almost 25 years now and have uh, well studied it. And we know very well the period of the moonlet's orbit. Uh, so. Uh, we're uh, uh, impacted with the DART spacecraft, and then after uh, the impact, uh, we will again uh, look at that uh, uh, from ground-based observatories, uh, examine the, the uh, light curve, the light coming from uh, the asteroid, which uh, uh, indicates to us what the uh, change in period of the moon is uh, about uh, Didymos. Are you going to be... Um... Uh, are we going to be able to see video of this uh, as it approaches and hits? Yeah, the DART spacecraft uh, has a, uh, a camera on it that will be streaming uh, images down uh, at uh, about a one second uh, 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 frequency. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, be uh, showing that imagery uh, as, it, uh, as it comes in. Um, there is also uh, accompanying with us a CubeSat that was uh, provided by the Italian Space Agency that we will deploy a few days uh, before the impact that uh, will follow us in, but uh, not impact uh, off to the side. And we'll also take images uh, uh, trying to capture uh, the uh, impact, the ejecta that is coming off the surface of the asteroid and the rest of the uh, Didymos uh, system. Uh, those images won't come down immediately, but in the days uh, following. And give us an idea of the sizes we're talking about, because I understand the spacecraft itself is about the size of a golf cart. How big's the asteroid? Well, uh, the primary asteroid, uh, Didymos, uh, is about a half mile uh, in, across in size. And uh, the moonlit uh, Dimorphos uh, is about the size of a small football stadium. Uh, so, uh, um, relatively small uh, and asteroids uh, compared to asteroids, but uh, kind of a moderate size for near-Earth asteroids. And uh, uh, Dimorphos, uh, were it uh, uh, on an impact trajectory with the Earth, uh, that's a size asteroid that could do uh, pretty serious damage, uh, devastate a, a statewide area. And I mean, I understand that you would be confident that it's gonna hit, but what if it misses? Uh, well, uh, that wouldn't be a good day for us uh, uh, yeah, uh, from an aspect of our, our flight missions. Uh, we're we're uh, really confident that uh, that we can impact. It's 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 a challenge, uh, but uh, one that uh, uh, you know we have uh, experience uh, with challenges. That which the, that's what we do with at NASA. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick pause here, and then we'll continue our conversation. Okay. Coming next, we'll continue our conversation with Lindley Johnson, NASA's Planetary Defense Officer. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. We're discussing NASA's effort to deflect a near-Earth asteroid with Lindley Johnson. He's the Planetary Defense Officer and Program Executive for the Planetary Defense Coordination Office at NASA. So, Lindley, uh, you know, assuming that the asteroid is hit and is redirected, can you tell me a little bit about the data that you will be collecting that will then inform future missions? Well, uh, the data that uh, we're collecting uh, to uh, see how we've changed the uh, uh, moonlit uh, asteroid's uh, orbit uh, is actually the uh, light curve of uh, the system. Uh, as the uh, moon goes around the, the primary, the uh, light dims uh, as it goes behind uh, and then uh, brightens uh, and dims a little bit uh, then also when it goes in front of the asteroid. And, and that's like a clock, uh, you know, uh, uh, very regular uh, intervals. Uh, when we change the orbit, the uh, orbital period, which we expect to change by t about 10 minutes, uh, we will see that change in the in the light curve uh, coming from the asteroid uh, with uh, ground-based uh, telescopes. And so we'll know how much uh, we uh, change the orbit uh, uh, by looking at that uh, at, uh, change in orbital period. Uh, we've modeled all this up, of course. Uh, we uh, know what to uh, expect uh, based upon uh, uh, the um, uh, size of the spacecraft, the velocity we'll be impacting it with, uh, and the and the uh, size and the uh, predicted uh, mass of the of the asteroid, uh, and so we'll compare what we uh, then see um, uh, after the impact with, with our models, and that will tell us um, how much we really understand about how these uh, dynamics work. It's uh, you know it's a science experiment. It's just like a science experiment. Uh, you predict what you're going to see. You, you do it and then you compare the results. So how are you working with allies like the European Space Agency on this issue? Well, uh, uh, you know, first of all, a uh, CubeSat uh, has been contributed by the Italian Space Agency, one of the members uh, of uh, the uh, European Space Agency. Uh, but also the uh, European Space Agency has a uh, follow-on mission uh, called HERA, uh, which they plan to launch in 2024 and go to this same uh, asteroid system, uh, Didymos. It'll, it'll arrive in about uh, uh, 2026, uh, four years uh, after our impact, and do uh, a complete reconnaissance uh, of the system of both uh, uh, Didymos and Dimorphos, uh, see what the results uh, of the impact um, are, you know, a post impact assessment, so to speak, and provide uh, an even more complete. Um, uh, data uh, of uh, uh, of the system and our effects on the system. So, Lindley, are there any smaller asteroids that um, w we might not know about that could be coming our direction in the future that maybe we should uh, well, be worried about? <laughs> well, actually, you know, our primary purpose in the Planetary uh, Defense uh, uh, Coordination Office uh, program at NASA is to find all these near-Earth asteroids. Um, we're tasked uh, by Congress right now to find them all down to a size of about 140 meters in size of 500, uh, 500 feet. Uh, and uh, we've been uh, conducting uh, this survey for over 20 years now. Uh, our uh, understanding of the population out there based upon the modeling uh, that we've done uh, indicates we've only found about 40% of that population so far. Uh, so, uh, and at, uh, at the current rate, we're finding about 500 a year. Um, it'll take us about 30, 35 years to find the rest of that population. And that's why um, um, 
we're working on improved capability to, to be able to do that. Uh, we really so, need to go to space-based uh, capability. So what are your plans, Lindley, going forward to try out other asteroid deflection techniques? Or are we going to stay with kind of the ram into the asteroid to deflect it system? Well, yeah, this uh, technique that we're testing with DART, uh, the kinetic impactor technique, uh, is just one uh, uh, capability that might be used. It, uh, it uh, really depends on the uh, scenario, how much time we have, how large the asteroid is, what might be the most effective technique. Uh, we chose to do this one first because the technology to do it is the most mature. Uh, but there are other ideas that uh, might be tested in the future. Uh, for instance, uh, a gravity tractor uh, uh, technique uh, that's just using a spacecraft to station keep with it uh, and uh, nature's tug rope gravity uh, just grab, uh, gradually uh, tugs it off. Uh, other ideas, uh, ion beam deflectors and uh, and some more exotic things, uh, you know, are, are talked about. Uh, uh, but this will, uh, with DART, uh, we know we have uh, one technique that works, uh, given that the asteroid is uh, not too large and we have uh, uh, several years of warning. So, uh, Lindley, will you come back in 10 months and tell us what happened? Oh, ab absolutely. Uh, be, be happy to. <laughs> All right, great. Thank you so much for being on the program. Nice talking to you. Enjoyed it. Thank you much. Coming next, the Space Development Agency is DOD's way to quickly develop space-based capabilities. Straight ahead on Government Matters, we'll talk to the director on getting that technology to the joint warfighter. We'll be right back. Development Agency, or the SDA, is called DOD's constructive disruptor for space acquisition, delivering space-based capabilities to the warfighter quickly. Derek Tournier is the director of the Space Development Agency. It's within the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. Derek, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So your website says this, quote, SDA recognizes that good enough capabilities in the hands of the warfighter soon may be better than delivering the perfect solution too late. How do you define good enough? That's an excellent question. The way we define it is essentially what is needed at the time to, to fight. And that, uh, you know, there's a lot of details in there. But the way we are set up, we're set up to deliver capabilities every two years. And so when we set up what we're going to deliver in two years, the first question is, what is feasible for industry to deliver in two years? And we know ex where we want to be in the next six, eight, 10 years, and we just make sure we keep pushing down that roadmap to get there. And that's essentially what that means in, in good enough, is to make sure that we can get the capability that industry can produce in the hands of the warfighter as rapidly as possible. But how do you know it's good enough for the warfighter? because we have requirements that are vetted by a warfighter council. We have a warfighter council that meets every six months. And in that, we, we present what we will deliver to the combatant commanders and we, we over the next two years. And we go around the room to make sure if we provide this capability in the next two years, will, be, will that affect your fight and your ability to, to actually respond to a threat? And when the answer comes back that, yes, that's something that we can use, that's what we know, that's good enough, and we'll push forward in that. And we'll make sure we have 
we have thresholds that we try to, well, that's what we'll meet, what we call a minimum viable product. And then we have objectives that we strive for to, to essentially add capabilities. But if we need to dump those objectives off to meet the minimum viable product on schedule, we'll do that. So Derek, is this a new acquisition strategy and, and can it be used across the department to speed up deployment of other high-tech systems? I mean, it's no secret that acquisition tends to be a bit slow for, for high-tech things. At the Space Development Agency, we're not doing anything magical or, or actually using any uh, real new authorities that, that are placed directly on us. The only thing we're doing is focusing on two main pillars, proliferation, so hundreds and hundreds of satellites, and then the spiral development. And that spiral development, that the activity we're talking about here and getting that good enough every two years, that is profound and that could be used across the board. So there's activities, if you're really capitalizing on commercial investments, anything that's doing that can capitalize on that spiral development model. Now there's a lot of very bespoke systems that have very detailed requirements and that, you know, then there's some, those may not be able to, to capitalize as much, but everything else can use this model. So there are 28 missile tracking space sensor satellites that you're procuring for 2024. What capability do those provide and how is that process going? So right now we're in the draft phase of that solicitation, but those 28 satellites would give us single satellite global coverage for the ability to detect and track hypersonic glide vehicles as well as the traditional ballistic missile threats. So all of the new missiles you've heard about that China's developing and flying and testing, we would be able to detect and track those in the 2024-2025 timeframe. You're also acquiring 144 communication satellites by 2024 um, that they should start launching, I should say, in late 2024. What's the capability that those will provide? So right now, all of our warfighters have tactical data links that they use to command and control in theater. But there is no way that you can tie those tactical data links to other tactical data links that are in different theaters. And it's also very difficult to tie those direct links that go to weapon systems back to CONUS or back to targeting cells, CONUS being the continental United States. That transport layer, those 144 satellites, would network all of those, cons all of those tactical data links together and be able to give you low latency tactical connectivity from targeting cells to weapon systems. So are there challenges, uh, Derek, to operating so many satellites and from multiple vendors? So the biggest challenge is, is producing those satellites. Right now, supply chain is a, is a big deal across the board. Satellites are no exception. Uh, even though we're using commoditized satellites, the commodities are, are no exception. So the biggest challenge is making sure that we can actually get the supply chains up and operational so that we can actually get the satellites out the door. Operating them, if you operate them based on the standard DOD model, it's extremely challenging. Essentially there you have on the order of 20 individuals operating one satellite. That's not sustainable. We're flipping that to go to more of a commercial model where we have at least 20 satellites that are manned by one operator. And that's just based on the way commercial entities operate their satellites today. The Space Development Agency will be transferring to the U.S. Space Force in the fall of 2022. What impact do you think that will have on your work? So as, a, as an agency right now, we're, we're independent and we're able to set our own requirements and push forward as rapidly as possible. We're working very closely with the, with the Space Force and the Air Force to make sure that once we transfer over, we'll be able to continue to deliver these capabilities to the warfighter. 
And right now, the Space Force has, has been extremely, extremely helpful in making sure that we get the right processes in place so that we fit in as seamlessly as possible. So I, I don't anticipate a lot of challenges. Congress has actually been very helpful to make sure that a lot of our authorities are preserved so that we can continue to operate, uh, in a sense, giving an alternative way to do, to do space acquisition within the Space Force. But I anticipate that once we fold in and we can start to directly integrate with the Space Force, we'll be able to deliver our capabilities just as, just as efficiently. All right, well, Derek, I appreciate you being on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can find a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. Sign up for the email list on the Government Matters homepage. We'll be back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.